Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The title of this episode is Why Don't You Just Adopt? Because when we were going through infertility, this is probably the most annoying question people asked me. Yeah, it's right up there with you need to relax or you need to take a vacation. So many people asked us this question. Well-meaning family members, acquaintances, even strangers who saw press coverage about our podcast. And I think it's no coincidence that the people who asked this question had themselves never adopted or fostered a child. For the record, I just want to say that no one ever asked me this question. Because penis, I am guessing. I, I think the main reason that people ask this question, it, it's a mix of wanting to be helpful, but also just pure ignorance and naivete. They heard me talking about spending five years and $50,000 trying to have a baby. They hear me talking about injecting myself full of chemicals and being really put through an emotional ringer. So they think, why are you doing all of this when there are so many kids out there who already exist and need a home? But of course, it's not that simple. Which is why in this episode, we're going to do a little time travel. We're going to pretend it's five years ago, and after discovering that we're infertile, instead of going the science route, we're going to just adopt. Okay, so now it's early 2014. You're busily writing nonstop about the Ebola outbreak, and I'm trading theories with the other assistants at work about a missing Malaysian airliner. And we've also just figured out that we're infertile, and we want to adopt. Cool. So what do we do? I'm guessing there isn't a big orphanage we go to where we meet little Oliver or Annie after they do a musical number. No, no. Not at all. Um, And in fact, after digging into this a little bit, the subject of adoption is so huge that we couldn't possibly cover every single obstacle in this single episode. It would take a whole podcast series. So let's just focus on the big core decisions that we would have been facing if we'd done this path. First question. Do we want a baby or are we okay with an older child? I would really rather have a baby. Okay, me too, but let's unpack that. Why? Honestly, having only raised a one and a half year old so far, it just feels really intense to me to imagine suddenly taking on a much older child who has already lived so much life and had so much happen to them. And maybe it's selfishness or laziness of imagination, but... I just don't know that I'd be up to that sort of challenge. It, it does sound kind of selfish, but I also would rather have a baby because I want to have as much influence and time in their lives as possible. I want the experience of waking up in the middle of the night, rocking them back to sleep, cradling them in my arms. Right. I, I guess I feel like what you said was the same thing that I said, but just framed more nicely. But either way... In a sense, we are off to a good start. We have agreed on a newborn, so let's go over our options from there. Okay, so we've compiled a bunch of numbers here from a few different sources. The main paths we could follow are a private domestic adoption, an international adoption, or adopting through the U.S. foster system. 
let's look at private domestic adoption first, which is sort of the adoption you maybe have seen in a movie like Juno. One of our main choices is between using an adoption attorney or an adoption agency. My instinct is that we would be attracted to using an adoption agency. It would feel similar in some ways to using a fancy fertility clinic. We'd be paying a fee for a group of experts to help us navigate an adoption. I think you and I like deferring to experts so that we don't have to be racked with self-doubt about every decision. Yeah, but that peace of mind is really expensive. I have here a survey by Adoptive Families magazine, and it asked people who had recently adopted to add up all the costs of the process. They also broke those costs down by category. So here's what we could have expected to pay if we started an adoption in 2014. Home study fee, $2,433. So that's a government-mandated interview of us, complete with background checks, references, and financial disclosures. They also come to our house uh, to make sure that we're fit as parents and have enough space for the child. A lot of states also require training before we even get to the home study part. Then there's a bunch of fees for the various professionals involved. Document preparation and authentication, $595. Adoption agency application and program fees, $18,826. Adoption consultant fees, $2,637. Attorney fees, $4,435. Now, this part is interesting to me because unlike IVF, we also have a bunch of costs related to a third party in the exchange. So... Advertising and networking to find the birth mother, $2,067. Birth family counseling, $1,345. Birth mother expenses, $3,411. Foster slash interim care, $282. And then there's also a weird grab bag of expenses. Travel expenses, $2,263. Post-placement expenses, $2,076. All other expenses, $2,869. So all in, the average total for adoption comes to $43,239. So on the money end, this isn't actually cheaper than IVF. We had some health insurance to help pay for our IVF, which we wouldn't have here. However, there is an adoption tax credit that we could claim. And Oath, which owns HuffPost, does have a $10,000 adoption benefit for employees. On the timeline front, this could have been faster than our two IVF cycles. 82% of people in this survey were able to adopt a newborn child within two years. That is an average, though, and obviously it all depends on an expectant mother choosing and approving us, which would not have been a given. Right. Like, doesn't the survey only have answers from people who successfully adopted? What about everyone else who dropped out or was rejected from the process? So that's a great point. The numbers could be completely off because we're only seeing the people who completed adoptions. Also, in 2014, I was splitting my time between working as an assistant and being unemployed. So I'm not sure if we would have looked like the best possible pair. We totally could have been in that rejected pile. I guess that's a benefit of IVF I never considered. I mean, no one ever interviewed us and said, do you really deserve to be parents? I mean, they just asked for money and then stuck things up my vagina. So based on the survey, the adoption attorney would probably have been slightly cheaper than the adoption agency, but had very similar results. 
Now, what kind of shocked me was that international adoption is actually more expensive than a domestic adoption, at least in this survey. Wait, why did you think the international adoption would be cheaper? I guess... I didn't understand why people were doing international adoptions unless it was cheaper. But after doing some research, I've seen four reasons mentioned. One is a desire for closed adoptions rather than open adoptions. International adoptions often result in the child having no real contact with their birth family. Now, that may sound cruel, but I've noticed a lot of people talking about their fear of an expectant mother backing out in a domestic adoption, or people saying that they turn to international adoption after experiencing a failed domestic adoption. The second reason I see mentioned is supply and demand. There's a complaint that since the U.S. legalized abortion and successfully reduced teen pregnancies, the percentage of U.S. babies up for adoption is way lower than it was 40 years ago. The third reason I've seen mentioned is humanitarian. Basically, the idea is that some of these kids are in really poor and terrible circumstances, sometimes in literal orphanages packed with other kids. So they are in more desperate need of help than kids in the U.S. system. And the final reason, which I want to be careful with because I don't want to offend anyone, but a lot of the sites that talk about international adoptions online are run by passionate evangelical Christians. And for reasons I don't fully understand, international adoption has some sort of special status in that community. Well, I can help answer this one. Um, I grew up going to evangelical church, and I still have a ton of friends and family who were in that community. I think for them, it boils down to a couple of things. Evangelicals are really open-hearted and charitable, and it, there are so many verses in the Bible that talk about caring for strangers, orphans, and widows. So a lot of churches have actually pressed their congregations to think about the world's orphan population as their personal responsibility as Christians to care for and raise. And there's also the notion that the more people you bring into your home, the more likely they are to become Christians and also be quote-unquote saved. So the final big option here is the cheapest and also most common, adopting through foster care. So here are the big pluses with foster care. There are 57,000 foster care adoptions in the U.S. every year, which is more than double the number of private adoptions. And the cost is also way lower. In the survey that we talked about, families who adopt through foster care spend on average just $3,000. Some even get money from the government that ends up making it free. Awesome. Finally, this must be the low-cost, zero-fuss option that all those assholes were talking about when they said to just adopt. So why doesn't everyone do this? Well, there's a bunch of reasons, but the main one is that foster care is not some big adoption agency. They're not there to help infertile couples complete their families. There are more than 400,000 kids in foster care in the U.S., and the goal for more than half of them is to return them to their original families. Right. We talked about this with a couple of people off air, and they described being a foster parent as being a safe port in a storm. Exactly. And only a small percentage of kids in the system are babies. And the whole thing is just slower and messier than private adoption because, by definition, those children are being detained from their original families against those parents' will often. So it can take years for um, original families or birth parents to lose their rights as parents or agree or consent to relinquish those kids and have them adopted in the end. It's also worth noting that in our research, we found out that a majority of kids in foster care are there for pretty serious reasons, neglect, and in a lot of cases because their parents abuse drugs. So again, it's super complicated. And it's almost like the assholes who told us to just adopt didn't even research anything. Right. 
but it can also be a really great option for people who are passionate about these kids and know that this is how they want to build their family from the get-go. One of my colleagues at HuffPosts is a parent through the foster care to adoption process, and I want to play a few clips from an interview that we did, which I think captures some of the ups and downs of this process. Hi, I'm Emily McCombs. I am the mother to a six-year-old boy who is adopted through foster care. When did you first realize that you wanted to foster a child? And was this something that was difficult to convince your partner about? I was always sort of drawn to that idea of fostering um, ever since I was young. It was something I kind of knew that I wanted to do. I think everyone has their sort of causes that they're passionate about. And I've always been really passionate about at-risk youth and children in general. And um, before I became a foster parent, I did Big Brothers Big Sisters. And um, I just was really uh, sensitive to the fact that there are a lot of children in this world who need homes and who need help. And uh, when I came to a place in my life where I had resources and room to offer uh, help to a child in need, um, I wanted to do that. So tell me, um, what was the day like for you when you first got the call about your son? Oh, my gosh. Um, Well, I fell in love with him (laughs) before I ever met him. Um, I mean, the funny thing was that we were expecting to get an older child because there are so many more older kids that need homes in the system. But um, we ended up getting a call for a placement for a seven-month-old baby. And um, that was really unexpected. And, of course, we didn't have any baby things, uh, so we ended up having to get all the sort of baby stuff in, like, a day. And I I didn't really know anything about babies. Uh, I had to learn it on the fly. But, um, yeah, the second that they that we received a call and all the information we really had was, you know, it's a seven-month-old healthy baby boy. And the caseworker did say he's really cute. and I was already in love and his name you know we knew his name and that was pretty much it and I was like I love that baby you know I already love that baby (laughs) so okay in a single day you set up a crib you Uh set up a stroller like that takes hours car seat yeah it took about uh 30 minutes for me to actually get the car seat into the car it was very complicated (laughs) And the crib, I mean, you just went to a store and picked one up. Generally, they're delivered. Yeah, we went to uh, my my uh, son's father went to uh, Target and got everything. And um, he they they said, when's the baby coming? And he said, tomorrow. (laughs) They said, you waited too long. (laughs) (laughs) And then 22 months later, we got dressed up. We went to court. Um. We uh, took our little stuffed dog, Polito, <laughs> and, you know, it's a really f- happy day because it's sort of like in family court, it's like the only nice thing that judges get to do in family court, mm-hmm. you know, so mm-hmm. they're like in a really good mood and really happy. And it's our same judge that we've been through all our other like dismal, horrible court dates with. So this is like she's really like happy and we're happy and everybody's just joyous and um, they read his his new name off the paperwork. It just his new last name. We kept his his name. Obviously, he was three. But um, 
and and he sort of in the like dead silence of the courtroom was like, "That's me." <laughs> <laughs> that was really cute. <laughs> Okay, so that sounds complicated, but lovely. I think for me, though, it just sounds too uncertain to be potentially parenting children temporarily and then relinquishing them back to birth family. I I just, I still think you and I would probably have gone with the adoption agency route. And I feel like that kind of wraps this up. Like, that's the answer. No more problems. We just needed to spend a ton of money and wait. Oh, no, you're making a face. (laughs) Yes, I am making a face. Well, one thing I wanted to bring up is because you and I are two different races, there is at least one more thing to consider. I am a jungle Asian, according to Ali Wong, and you are... I'm a a chosen person, according to the Bible. (laughs) Okay, yes, you are so chosen. What, What I mean is, is as adoptive parents, we have a lot more to talk about than your average same race couple. For example, Emily and her partner are both white. Here's how they discussed approaching a transracial adoption. When you go through the process, you um, are able to notate, you know, as specifically as you want, what race you'd be willing to adopt, foster or adopt. You know, on our forms, I could have put white babies only. I could have put black babies only. I could have, you know, I could have, we, I didn't. Uh, specify any particular race. And was that something that you talked about with your partner beforehand? Like, hey, what should we do for this part? I mean, I think we both just felt that we were open to any child who needed a home. That sounds reasonable, right? It feels like that's what 2014 us would have chosen too. Let's keep listening. So now that you've been a mother for six years to a Black child, um, in retrospect, Um, Do you think that that training that you got was enough or do you have um, a different conception of what you and your partner first thought when you were trying to check those boxes? I I wasn't clueless about the fact that transracial adoption is uh, a weighty issue. Um, The fact that we didn't receive training about it doesn't mean that I wasn't thinking about it or that I didn't do my own research. You know, I had to sort of do that work myself. I've certainly, my eyes have been opened about a lot of things in that time that you can only sort of learn through the experience of actually raising a black child. You know, I've learned a lot in the past six years that I I didn't learn just from reading about transracial adoption. He literally had a, his first police interaction at three years old. We what? we had um we had a a playground incident. We had um he ran into a little girl um on his scooter accidentally, and the little girl's mother called the police. Were you there with him? Yeah, on my three year old child. Um, what I happened? Lost it. <laughs> I mean, luck. We were lucky that the police, you know, treated it as the sort of laughable situation that it was, but it's scary because what happens when, again, he's 12 and I'm not there and something like that happens, you know? So when she's calling the police, are you there just trying to talk to her? Like, why are you doing this? Like, hey, I mean, I wouldn't say I was talking. (laughs) I was maybe yelling. (laughs) Um, And he was scared, you know, he was like, am I going to jail? What's going to happen? Like, he was terrified. I just wonder, like, what that woman's goal was. Like, what did she think was going to happen when the police came? 
I think possibly she was trying to set up some kind of like litigation. Like maybe she was, I, I can't, I'm not, I can't say for sure what her motivation was, but I, I feel there has to be a racial component there, you know? When the police came, how did they deal with it? I mean, they they separated us and asked both of us sort of what was going on. And then they just they sort of just waved us away and they they spoke to her. But, you know, they didn't they didn't follow up with us, really. They did. They got an ambulance for the little girl. The little girl was fine. (laughs) She had like a bloody lip, but they called an ambulance for her. Oh, my gosh. So going home from the park that day, how did you talk about it with your son? I mean, we talk about <laughs> we talk about the police all the time. You know, they we we talk about the talk. You know, you, you always hear about the talk that you have to have with your child of color. We have and we introduce our son to the police in our neighborhood. You know, he he knows them. We make sure that they know who he is and they know his name and his face and that he's a good kid. You know, we um we talk about how you interact with the police, how you behave, and, you know, yes, sir, and no, sir, and all of that. And um, it's, uh, you know, it's kind of, it's an ongoing conversation. So he, you know, he understands that stuff. I mean, as much as you can understand it when you're six, it's difficult to understand even when you're 35, like I am. At the end of the day, I feel like having a home is what's best for kids. And again, like I just go back to like this huge amount of kids that are need a home. Um, There are a lot of kids that need homes. And I know that there are a lot of issues. And I know that, you know, my son could grow up and say, you know, you fucked me up. (laughs) You know, (laughs) I could be, you know, like for this or other reasons. Um, But, you know, all I can do in my situation is I, you know, I opened my home to a child. I I love him. He loves me. And all I can do is do my best to to do the work, you know. After the break, we're going to dig deeper into the complexities of a transracial adoption. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We were so happy that IVF and got some attention. One of the most exciting things that happened was that it landed on Atlantic's top 50 podcast of 2017. They called our marriage, quote, passive aggressive. Very good, accurate review. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Ringing endorsement. And after all of those reviews and messages, we realized that there was one thing we forgot to ask of you guys, which is to review us, to rate us. Yeah, we forgot to do the most basic thing, which is ask you to go to the iTunes store and give us five stars and a nice little recommendation. If IVFML helped you feel heard, it helped you find your community, or if it helped you come up with a way to explain your situation to family and friends, please let us know. You can reach us at IVFML at HuffPost.com. A lot of you guys have already reached out. Again, that's IVFML at HuffPost.com. Thanks. Because we're an interracial couple, no matter what type of adoption we go with, there's a big checkbox that we have to deal with. And that's whether we're open to adopting a child of another race. It kind of seems that any kid we adopt will be a transracial adoption, at least for one of us. There just aren't a lot of half-Filipino, half-Jewish babies out there who are even available for adoption. In fact, in the foster care system, only 1% of all the kids there are Asian. Right. Still, I've been curious about all the special challenges that transracial adoption entails. I went to Emeryville, California, to talk with an adoption agency that specializes in these kinds of issues. PACT and Adoption Alliance. Here's PACT's transracial adoption specialist, Katie stickles who herself is a transracial adoptee. I was born in Bogota, Colombia in the early 80s, and my parents, who were living in New Jersey at the time, adopted me when I was about a month old. My mother is white um, from New Jersey, born and raised in New Jersey. My father is white, born and raised in the Netherlands, and then came over here in the 60s where he met my mom. They apparently had wanted to try to have two kids by birth and two kids by adoption. And then when the kids by birth didn't work out due to their own fertility stuff, uh, they decided to just pursue adoption. And in the late 70s, early 80s, Colombia was really popular. And international adoption back then was really popular. So they went that route. They adopted my brother in 1976 and they adopted me in 1982. Let's talk about, you know, what... Um, a transracial adoption success story might look like for PACT. Like, what are, of the families that you guys have served over the years, what are the, you know, what are the hallmarks or like the the details of their lives that help you know that the child is in a good place? So success and adoption, I don't always like using those together. People <laughs> are like, what's a successful story? I think bottom line is adoption of any form is a trauma the child has been removed from their family of birth and then they're being raised by people who did not give birth to them. But kind of like families that are doing it right or families that are doing it well, there is a family, their their first daughter is now 17 or 18, so I didn't know them, but they were a two-parent white family living in Maine and they recognized this is not where we raise a black child and they moved out here to Oakland um, so they live in the East Bay and they are super involved with PACT. Their family comes to our camp every summer. Their oldest daughter is now a counselor in training with us. And she is definitely solid in her racial identity as a Black woman in America. 
So those are the families I feel that are doing it right. The families that have moved to more diverse areas. And there's a whole bunch of families I can think of. The families that are walking the walk and talking the talk or whatever (laughs) way that goes. Um, There are a couple of families in Southern California that are packed families that are super involved and the leaders of their showing up for racial justice chapter. So that's, I don't know that much about it, but it's basically white people talking with white people about race and the privilege that we have as white people in America. So the families, the transracial adoptive parents that are doing the work that are driving around for three months trying to find a pediatrician of color, that are moving to more diverse areas, that are immersing their children in their culture and with people of their race, that are going to schools and making sure that administration and or teachers reflect their child, not just the PE coach and the janitor. So those, I mean, I don't like the word success, but essentially those are parents that are doing it well. What are the consequences of a transracial adoption in which a parent or a family doesn't really feel like they need to change anything about their lives. Those adoptions do happen. I mean, not all agencies are like this. Those adoptions happen all the time and are still happening today. I feel like this answer, I don't know. I mean, it's coming from myself who's aware and I work for an agency that's really aware. But what I tell people is parents who take a colorblind approach or think having a black Barbie doll is gonna be enough for their kid it's just dangerous. Like it is ultimately dangerous to have your child raised like that and to not change anything about your life. People tend to freeze us as a child. They're going to grow up to be an 18 year old, a 25, a 32 year old black, Latino, Asian, biracial, multiracial person in this country. And given the climate of this country right now, it is dangerous to send a child out there who is not prepared for what it's going to mean. And there are a lot of adoptees who grow up and say, I was the only black person in my tiny town in Minnesota, but everybody loved me because I'm unique and I was a cute baby. I don't know, right? Nobody in their town was racist towards them. But then the second that they leave home, which we all ultimately hopefully will do, they're faced with a whole nother world that they weren't prepared for. Whereas families that are doing the work from day one and preparing their children, their children know okay, I'm now 12 years old. The police probably think I'm really 17. I know what to do. I know my rights. Like they've had the talk, which families of color have with their kids of color. These white parents need to have that with their kids. Wow, this is uh, really heavy. (laughs) And this feels like where I would give up. Can we please give up now? Hold up. PACT has this survey that it likes all other potential adoptive parents to fill out. It helps us see where we're starting when it comes to readiness to parent a child of a different race. Basically, it asks you to think of everyone that you encounter in your daily life. Then you assign a race to them, and then you add up all the numbers to see what the racial makeup of your community is. It sounds uncomfortable. I know. Let's do it. Um, I am just looking at it now and seeing that I have to put into percentages different racial groups for different parts of my life and how many people I work with who are peers, who are stationed above me, stationed below me, who are clients, customers. So, uh, <laughs> just okay, doing well, let's that. Just, let's just start from the beginning. Yeah. Okay, so let's look at the first category, which is work. They're asking. I gave our results back to Katie to evaluate. Here's what she said. Okay, so Simon and I filled out this form. Mm-hmm. 
I am Filipino. I was born in the Philippines. I uh, grew up in both New Zealand and California. And Simon is Jewish, born and raised in Los Angeles, and except for like a brief stint in college, never left Los Angeles. And now we live in L.A. So that's racially the context that we are at. Great. So what are you seeing in these forms? <laughs> um, so what I am seeing in the forms are and what is pretty common with families that come to transracial adoption is really strong numbers in their own racial or ethnic makeup. Your paperwork was very strongly more Asian American and Simon's paperwork is very strongly more European with some Asian American, obviously, because you're married and your lives cross. Those are my friends. Right. (laughs) So looking at your paperwork right now, the brutal honest truth is you are definitely not ready to support an African-American or a Latino child um, in your family. There are low percentage numbers of Uh, African-American people in your workplace, nothing in social group really, or service providers. Numbers where there are for service providers, it's blue collar uh, services. So the image that that would then send a child is, oh, your people do all of this work while our people are the presidents and the CEOs and the stuff like that. So we really have families look at... um, the people of color in their neighborhood and in their world and what type of messaging that would then send a child. And now let's say, you know, we're parents coming to PACT. We hear this brutal honesty from you. Is this the end? Is this the end of the relationship, potential relationship? Or is there stuff that we could work on? Yeah. So a lot of families, um, I'd say they come to PACT or they also hear from transracial adoptees, specifically white families, and they freak out and they say, oh, you don't want me to adopt a kid of color. You're not going to let me, et cetera, et cetera. At PACT and myself personally, I'm a transracial adoptee. So I come to this um, with lived experience. So I'm not saying, and PACT is not saying that white people cannot or should not adopt children of color. We're saying families need to be educated. PACT believes transracial adoption can work if families are educated and prepared to understand and know what it means to parent a child of color. So what did you think about that? I mean, it was very unpleasant, Uh, hopefully not too unpleasant for the listener, uh, but also unsurprising. Like, it is not a big surprise to me that my life is segregated, uh, but it is also not nice to come face to face with it and see that I would literally be a dangerous parent for a lot of kids in need. Yeah, I mean, that's assuming that we do nothing in our lives to change any of this if we were. It's always a good bet that I will do nothing. That's, <laughs> that's where I would put my money if you're betting on something. Uh, at the time when I was in the room with her, I personally felt rejected. I felt my face was getting really hot. Um, and I also felt embarrassed. Um, I think this is because I think of myself as Filipino first and foremost. I was born in Manila. Uh, I have this diversity baked into my life that's made me different from everyone else for as long as I can remember. You know, vacation to the Philippines um, every couple years, back and forth in my childhood, um, stinky, smelly lunches that kids would make fun of me for. And then to hear that or to realize now that I am an adult who lives in a mostly white community and works in a mostly white office, it's almost like a part of my identity has is being a little bit unacknowledged or erased. So 
what happens to a family like us? So, you know, families who can't make kids on our own, but also aren't going to have a lot of kids in these systems who look like us and who don't have lives that are diverse enough to adopt kids of a different race. Honestly, I don't know. Katie did mention that transracial adoptions with Asian American parents are becoming more common. It's important to also keep in mind that this survey is just the beginning of the transracial education process. It's to help people like you and I understand where we're starting from. Like, some parents might take the survey and then they realize like, oh shit, we cannot bring a black child into our super white rural community. Or, oh man, our parents, which would be these kids' grandparents, are way too racist to ever accept a child of a different race into the family. But... If there are some people who are committed to a transracial adoption, PACT is there to help support them with classes, support groups, and educational material, and a yearly summer camp to help any kids that are eventually adopted into that family feel more in connection with their racial identity. Which is great that there is a service there like that. I do want to talk about a different reaction to this whole thing, though, which is that the whole adoption process feels really opposite to me of how we were treated at the IVF clinics. Totally. Like at the IVF clinics, they were bending over backward for us to do any procedure or treatment that we wanted, you know, so so they could take our money. And they just wanted us to feel good and happy and hopeful all the time. Right. And then here's Katie from PAC saying, nah, we don't really need your money. And in fact, we probably wouldn't approve you for an adoption at first. Yeah, that's basically what it boils down to. I actually talked about the money issue with Katie as well, because money plays such a huge role in adoption dynamics. Like, for example, when you think about the adoption triad of the birth parents, the adoptive parents, and the adopted child, what's generally the case is that the adoptive parents think that they have all the power because they're the ones that are handing over a bunch of money in this transaction. Right. Like we we outlined all those costs at the beginning of the episode. It's a lot of money. But in reality, when it comes to adoptions, or at least ethical adoptions, adoptive parents are the least important people in the transaction. Here's what Katie and I had to say about this. The exchange of money puts the adoptive parents or the prospective parents in a mindset of, I'm the consumer that needs to be served. Yes. And it's, and certainly when you're going to infer, infertility clinics, that, yeah, you are the customer and you're paying a lot of good money You want certain results and you demand it as the paying customer. There needs to be, what I'm hearing from you, is a change in frame of mind. Yes. Going from infertility to adoption. Yes. You're still exchanging money, but you're no longer the person that needs to be pleased. Yeah. I've actually (laughs) never heard somebody say it like that, but that's essentially that's what that quote breaks it down to. At PACT, we're trying to take this child-centered approach. We're not here to um, pass out children. And I get that all the time from phone calls. Where do you get your babies from? Where are the pregnant women staying while I wait? Um, all of this stuff. And I I just have to say, I'm, I'm not out here searching for babies for you. I'm out here making sure that families are ready to adopt, whether they're a Black family adopting a Black child or a white family adopting a Black child. We're here to make sure that they understand the complexity of, of adoption the intersections of race and adoption, open adoption, birth parents, all of that, um, because we're child-centered. We're trying to find a family for a child.
Okay, so now that we've done our little adoption thought experiment, what do you think about the suggestion to just adopt? Well, I think that it is horseshit. Um, I mean, we've barely covered how crazy complicated adoption is, and I already feel exhausted. I also feel like we haven't even scratched the surface of the whole emotional element of it. Katie, like a lot of other adult adoptees, really cuts into this idea that adoption is just a nice way for infertile people to complete their family and do a little bit of good in the world at the same time. Like she says, first and foremost, adoption is a trauma for the child and their birth parents. And to position adoption as just an alternative to infertility treatments is such a misguided approach. I just wanted to play one little excerpt from an interview that I did with Katie's colleague at PACT, Malika Parker. She has four children, two biological and two adopted. A lot of folks that come to adoption come to adoption after a huge loss themselves, right? So they've gone through fertility, they've gone or or they didn't get married when they thought they did or they're they are deciding later in life and they don't have a partner, right? So things look different than the picture they assumed for themselves. Um, and they need time to grieve that too. Um, and not everybody does, right? Like people, I think a lot of times feel like, well, this is a social good, right? Like I'm doing something for my community and don't give themselves time to, to feel like, oh, actually like I've lost something too. And it's really important to spend that time to repair that so that you're fully open and ready for the child that's going to join your family. Yeah, so I think Malika really nails something there. And what bumps me a lot about the just adopt thing is that it is conflating these two really different emotional needs. Like, let's think for a second about like a Venn diagram for a second. And there's this one circle, which is I want to see my parents and grandparents in a tiny little face and extend my genetic line. And this other circle is this kind of like, oh, there are so many kids in need and imagine the good I could do with the resources that I have. And obviously there's a lot of overlap between those two circles. Like you're raising a child in both of those situations. You are having the joys of and struggles of parenthood in both. Right. But it's not a perfect overlap. And it also kind of assumes that adoption is this plan B for when things don't go your way. Emily's story makes clear, though, that there are a ton of people who know from the very beginning that fostering or adopting is how they want to make their family. And you just can't pretend that every infertile couple feels that way. And if it really is about the child in need, why do they only ask infertile people who have suffered this profound loss to do adoption? Yeah, and it it just, it sucks, honestly, that even though having your own biological offspring is a desire that every person, every animal, every slug, every bacteria on the planet gets to have, if you're infertile, suddenly it's called out as selfish. And it's like, oh, Why do you only think about yourself? Why can't you just think about this child's needs? Okay, is your rant over? Yes. So what is your takeaway? Do you want to do this? So first, I'm humbled by what I've learned about adoption. I am so thankful that Katie, Emily, and Malika have all shared their journeys with us. And I also feel like my respect and esteem for people that I know who have adopted has just gone up exponentially. Like they've done something so beautiful. On the other hand, I know that I also feel really shitty about stuff that I've said and thought about infertile people in my life before I found out that I was infertile. Like I totally raise my hand high when I say that I was definitely one of those, why don't you just adopt assholes? That's gross. But even though I now understand why, why don't you just adopt is such a terrible question. I have to admit that doing all this research has made me interested in foster care in a really serious way. 
I think what appeals to me about it is, one, you get the privilege of being able to help raise a very young person and guide them, just like any other parent, leave some kind of legacy to them, just like any other parent, while also fulfilling a very deep-seated need that I have and that a lot of people have, which is to be useful and do something good for someone who needs help. So I don't feel that same need. To me, adoption has always been one of those things where it's like, oh, it'd be good if I did that. Like, It's, it's not a strong drive. It, it's more in the realm of, I should really put a solar panel on the roof or I should stop using so many paper towels. Like, It's, it's an abstract good deed that I would like to have done, but I'm not taking any positive steps at all to make it happen. Uh, I think for me, it has to do more with the fact that fostering, now that I understand it more, it's not a strange concept. There are informal versions of it in my family in the Philippines, and it just feels so natural to step in for your family when they need a little break or need help getting through a tough time. The the stuff with your grandparents. Right. So my grandparents were always taking in grandchildren to live with them so that they could go to school in their neighborhood, or my aunts in Manila took in a niece from the provinces after a hurricane swept her home away. Like, my family would never call that a quote-unquote adoption or a foster care situation, but that's exactly what foster parents in the U.S. do. There is a another difference between us here, which is my family didn't even adopt dogs. I mean, we got purebred poodles. Well, for me, it's like, what if I could think about the kids in the foster care system as part of my extended family and just be there for them if they need help? That's a way less savior complexy read on the situation and just more like we take care of our family when they need something. So that's why I've signed us up for a foster care orientation for Asian American families in L.A. Sure, that sounds like something you'd do without asking me. I already sent the Google Calendar invite. Um, I, I will come. I've gone to much worse things for you. And maybe I will be inspired. But right now, honestly, my heart still belongs to that second embryo of ours in the freezer. IVFML Becoming Family is produced and edited by Anna Almendrala, Simon Gans, Nick Offenberg, and Sarah Patterson. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 